hard to see the little green light. Pretty bright out here. Well, hello. <laughs> Look at you all. Wow, that is a beautiful sight. And that's not my ingratiating way of saying you're beautiful necessarily, but that is a beautiful sight. It is good to be together again. And you are beautiful. <laughs> let, me, let me quickly add that before I dig myself a huge hole here. Um, so you're still kind of far away from me, so I'm going to need a little bit of uh, response. So um, how should we do this? Uh, it could be amen. It could be hallelujah. Um, let's go with amen. Is it good to be together? Amen. All right. Take your pick. Yeah, there's always somebody bucking the trend. So good morning. Uh, my name is Alex, and I am the lead pastor here at Courtright, and, and we are continuing this morning, even though we're outdoors, um, in a different setting, we're continuing with what we've been working through the last month. Uh, we've been asking ourselves, why worship? And I think it's actually really great to be outdoors and asking ourselves this question, because uh, how would you explain this to somebody who just walked by and said, what the heck is going on over there? Um, we find that sometimes people don't even know this is a church building. It doesn't look like a church building in a lot of ways, depending on what you expect. So how would you explain what happens inside on a Sunday morning? And that's kind of why we've taken the time to stop and step back and say, why do we do what we do and, and what does it mean? Uh, we've been looking at how God shapes us through worship. It's not just a duty we show up on Sunday mornings because we've always done that or we feel like we have to somehow. Uh, there is an, an order to what we do in worship. And we've talked about a fourfold pattern of worship that we gather, we listen, we respond, and we're sent out. So we gather with the call to worship and the prayer of confession. We listen to God's word through the reading and teaching of scripture, what's about to happen right now, and we respond to God with thanksgiving, and we're sent out with a benediction or blessing. And today we're going to consider specifically our response to God's word. And before I read from God's word, are there any really fast kids here today who can run really fast? So if any of the sheets of my sermon fly away, you're commissioned to run and grab it, okay? That, that, that can be uh, your exercise for the day. Hopefully they won't, though. Actually, there's a big rock down there. No, I'm not going to do that. Um, let's pray before we read Scripture. Dear God, we thank you so much that, that as we sing of your beauty and your glory, we can be outside today, and we can look up at the sky and we can imagine the heavenly host who are praising you with us. And there's this um, added blessing of being together in this setting. And, and it's been so long since we did this. We, as Justin prayed earlier, we just thank you that we can be here um, for your mercy and for your faithfulness. And, and now as we turn to your word, I pray that you would uh, lead us in the way of understanding your gospel. Um, show us who you are today. Show us who Jesus is, we pray. Amen. 
So we're going to be reading from Luke 24, and you'll have to listen really well because we don't have it on a screen for you. Some of you maybe brought Bibles, but um, let's read from the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 24, verses 13 to 35. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing as together you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, are you really the only one visiting Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have happened here in these days? What things? He asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all of this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it, just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. He said to them, this is Jesus talking, said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he was going farther. But they urged him strongly, Stay with us, for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, Were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, It is true, the Lord is risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We've looked at a lot of psalms so far in this series, and that's appropriate. The psalms are uh, the book of worship that the Jewish people used and used to this day, and, and we as Christians also turn to the psalms to understand worship. But today we turn to the Gospels, because worship always leads to an encounter with Jesus. And that's what this story is about. And what we're going to see in Luke 24 is that there's both word and table in what we've read today. And by word, I mean scripture or the Bible, what we refer to as God's word. Last week, we talked about how we listen to God's word, read and preached each Sunday. And then, once we've done that, we respond with thanksgiving. Today, we're going to see that the sacrament of communion is the greatest expression of Christian thankfulness. 
We sometimes call communion by other words, right? We call it the Lord's Supper or Eucharist. Now that word Eucharist is a Greek word which means thanksgiving. And we're going to see how this expression of thanksgiving that comes after we've listened to and heard God's word is at the center of who we are as Christians. So we're going to look at four moments in what we've read from Luke 24. First of all, the background. Where do these two disciples come from? What's going on? Why are they so sad? Secondly, Jesus with them on the road, the word. Jesus with them in their home, the table. And then after Jesus leaves, the community that forms uh, in his presence, even once he's departed physically. So we have these two disciples who are walking along and... They're headed home. They're headed home to Emmaus, a village near Jerusalem. It's the third day since Jesus was executed, and they are in deep discussion about what's happened. Jesus joins them, but they don't recognize him. It even says they were kept from recognizing him. And so Jesus asks them, what are you talking about? This is how you strike up a conversation with someone in the park, right? They stop, their faces downcast, and so we realize that they are heartbroken, and, and we know why, but there's a reminder here to enter into the story that, that their lives are shattered by what has taken place. They can't believe that Jesus hasn't heard the news about this either, which has to make you smile a bit because they're saying to the person the news is all about that they can't believe he doesn't know this stuff, which obviously he does. Jesus does not let on who he is, but he asks, what things? So maybe some of you have had an experience of having a really good teacher. What I've, the good teachers I've had over the years who have helped me to learn for myself and not just spoon-fed me are not the ones who just immediately give the answers or tell you what you need to know. They're the ones who ask good questions, right? They're the ones who lead you step by step into a deeper place of understanding. And that's exactly what Jesus does here. So the disciples describe Jesus as a great prophet who preached the most incredible sermons, who healed people, and who helped them turn their lives around. But they don't call him Lord, which is the basic Christian confession that Jesus is Lord, because they think he's dead. They think it's done. And they do admit that they hoped Jesus was going to be the one to redeem Israel and to lead his people to freedom. Most of all, I think they're confused here. They trusted Jesus and he let them down. Now, we might think that's not us, that's them. You know, we know about the resurrection. There's no chance I would feel that way. But if we're honest for a minute, I think some, perhaps most of us can relate to that. God has disappointed you in some way. And maybe right now you can share in that sadness of these disciples. You're downcast yourself, maybe even angry about circumstances in your life. And maybe it's about one person in particular, a parent or both of your parents, an authority figure of some type, a friend who betrayed you, someone in your family. We seem to always let each other down. And pretty soon we're well on the way to being cynical about human nature and we lower our expectations accordingly. We may end up assuming that we can't really trust anyone. And of course there are other disappointments like the Leafs. 
And, you know, it's been a while since we've been together and, and we could commiserate. Thank you for that. So um, afterwards, maybe at an appropriate distance, the Leaf fans can gather over there and the Habs fans should leave immediately. Should leave immediately, not greet anyone, just for your own safety, okay? So, but there's a turning point here on the road to Emmaus. There's more to the story. There's a break with this basic human pattern of distrust and disappointment. The women went to the tomb and didn't find the body of Jesus. And you can almost imagine the disciples sharing this information with this quizzical look on their face. We, we don't know what's going on. We're all ready to process what happened and we're doing that. But then this surprise out of nowhere. And they even said they saw angels who said Jesus was alive. And then the disciples, some of the men went and they also didn't see Jesus, the body. And that last line is totally ironic because they are seeing Jesus right in front of them. And yet they're talking about not seeing him. And we want to yell at them almost, hey, he's right there. Wake up, notice him. Now, Jesus might have felt something similar because he changes his approach at this point. No more innocent questions. He's the good shepherd who cares for his sheep, but he doesn't just hold our hands. And so he rebukes their foolishness. He's listened for a while, but now he's going to tell them they're wrong. He says, pay attention, wake up to me. And he goes on. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explains the scriptures to them. He doesn't call them foolish just because they hadn't figured out the resurrection. That's not why he's unhappy with them. He's pointing out that what they've done, in fact, is push their own agenda onto God's word. And so they had misunderstood their Bibles and all the prophets. And that's important. That it says all the prophets and all of scripture. These disciples, they knew their Bibles, but they'd failed to grasp the big picture. They'd only believed one side of the story, the side of the story they wanted to believe, the story of the Messiah as a triumphant king who would redeem Israel by defeating its enemies and freeing them from Roman oppression. They were so caught up in this idea of victory, they were blind to the possibility that God's glory would not come that way, that it would come instead through suffering. And you know, whenever the church has sold itself out for political power, it has lost its way in history, and it's done that, sadly, all too often. And we're seeing that right now with more terrible news from former residential schools. When the church loses sight of the whole gospel, not just the part it wants to believe, the part that tells it it's, the Christian life is about prosperity, we have a track record of complicity in violence and coercion. And for that, we have to repent. And the church has been doing that. We have put nationality and culture before the gospel. And we have missed Jesus entirely in the process. But Jesus always points us back to the cross. He had not sugarcoated his message or tried to make it easy for his disciples. The way the church is often tempted to market Christianity as entertainment. No, Jesus said, if you follow me, you will have to take up your cross. You will suffer. That is part of the Christian life you can expect. And in verse 26, he cuts to the heart of it. He says, did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And that's partly why they couldn't recognize Jesus. They had not grasped that the Messiah had to suffer. And so Jesus explains that to them. He explains the whole Bible to them, the all of the gospel. 
And still they don't recognize him. I mean, you would think they would after that experience of walking with Jesus himself and hearing all of that. So why don't they recognize him? I think because they needed more than just a head knowledge of Christian faith. They needed a real encounter with Christ. But that can only happen by grace. You can't reason your way there. You can't try through your own devices, your own attempts to make this work for yourself to get there. And I think there's a real temptation that we face in the tradition that Courtright Church comes from, the Reformed tradition, to pride and self-sufficiency. We believe in education. We believe in sound doctrine. When I was at Knox College, it was proud that it was the only college that still required biblical languages for its ministers. We believe sermons should be meaty and expository, not fluffy, not entertainment. And we're sometimes tempted to be contemptuous of those who are shallow or wrong in their thinking. But these disciples needed what we need. They needed God to open their eyes. Only then could they recognize Jesus. And that comes by a complete act of grace. Jesus is saying, you won't really know him and you won't continue even after you've known him to grow in the knowledge of him until you recognize that only he gives you what you need. How does he do that here? Well, in the most ordinary way you can imagine, in a meal by the breaking of bread. How many of you had breakfast this morning? Most of you had breakfast this morning. Those of you who didn't, are you planning to have lunch? Yeah, yeah, I see some, some thumbs up on that. Good. Unless you're fasting today, most of us had breakfast and we're looking forward to lunch. And when we eat, it's the very definition of mundane. It's every day. It's something, it's one of those small pleasures that sometimes we take for granted. And yet we know that meals matter. Our most meaningful relationships with friends and family happen over meals. And I think that's one, been one of the hardest things about the pandemic is not being able to do that together with friends and family. Not being able, as I know some of you do, to invite people home after the service on Sunday morning, to invite people over who are your neighbors. We haven't had that richness of relationship. Jesus makes it clear here as he breaks bread with these two confused disciples that He's not going to take us away from all of that into something super spiritual, into a monastic community in the desert. No, right in the thick of those relationships, in the messiness of them, in their conflict, in their joys and complications, in our everyday realities, over a meal, he gives us the grace that we need so that we can truly live. He gives us the grace to leave behind our fear and our sorrow and he frees us up to forgive others and to love them. This meal on the road to Emmaus reminds us of other meals. The feeding of the 5,000. The Last Supper, when Jesus commanded his followers to do this in remembrance of me. Each time, at each of those meals, it tells us that Jesus broke bread and gave thanks. Thanksgiving again. Eucharist. That is why word and table must go together. Our response to God's word, to his revelation of who he is, always begins with gratitude for his gift of love. 
And every week in our services, we give thanks in the prayers that come after the sermon. We give thanks for our daily bread and for the gift of knowing Christ. We also do that when we take up the offering and we give thanks for God's faithfulness that we can return to him what he's provided through that offering. And then once a month, at court rate, it's been a while, but once a month under normal circumstances, we remember Jesus by celebrating communion. And that's the highest note of thanksgiving in our life together as the church. And we're going to be sharing that meal today for the first time in almost a year and a half. And we have missed it. I know you have. I've heard from you directly, some of you. And I think we've missed it for lots of reasons, but at the very heart of it is because nothing unites us so powerfully or reminds us so clearly and compellingly of the death and resurrection of Christ than receiving his grace at the Lord's Supper. We know Jesus in the breaking of the bread because he was broken for us. He gave his life as the perfect sacrifice for our sins and so the death could be defeated and that's the very core of our faith without that should we ever forget that we are nothing it's only by his grace that our eyes have been opened to who he is it's not because we're special or anything we've done our background our family the way we've lived communion is a means of that grace we receive it with open hands all of us come to this table as beggars John Calvin gives us a definition of church. He says it's wherever the word of God is preached faithfully and the sacraments, baptism, and the Lord's Supper are rightly celebrated. Word and table, we have them both here in Luke 24. Jesus teaches these two disciples from Scripture and then they break bread together. We need them both always in the life of the church. And they come not in a definition or in a doctrine as important as those things are, but in a relationship with God, who is Lord of the universe and reveals himself to us in Jesus, and in the Holy Spirit, who seals and brings to life that knowledge in our hearts. So, you may have noticed something curious at the end of the reading. Jesus just, poof, disappears. Why would he do that? It seems abrupt, it seems strange. I think in order to help them grasp that things are going to be different now. His presence will be with them, but it will be spiritual. They won't be able to touch him in the way they were able to before. And I love the way these two companions on the road to Emmaus start to work it out together. They remember the presence of Christ and they unpack what just happened. They say, were not our hearts burning within us? And then they get up and they go. They're moved immediately to find other people. They go back to scripture with their eyes wide open. They tell their story. And so the community of the church begins to form with that retelling, with that witness, that remembering and proclaiming. And then, as we saw a month ago, the Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost. So when we respond to God with thanksgiving, the Spirit gives us joy and moves us to generosity. And that's going to be a long journey, but the Spirit promises to nurture that fruit within us.
to give us the gifts we need in the church to encourage one another, to challenge one another, to support one another. And we see that in Acts 2. Last Saturday, uh, we had a group of us meet for Court Rate Connect. And every time we do that, uh, I always invite people to share the reflections on a passage in Acts chapter 2, which is this picture of the early church. It's, it's one of the most inspiring, compelling portraits of the Christian life that, that I've ever read. In that picture of what the church looked like in Jerusalem, in the days following Pentecost, we see bread twice. It talks about how the church celebrated the breaking of bread, which is a reference to communion. But also it says that they met together daily in each other's homes. They broke bread together. And so these things always go together. God forbid that we should only experience the Lord's Supper and then not experience the, the community life of the church the bearing with one another through the week in times of sorrow, in times of sickness, in times of difficulty, as well as in the good times. We are sent out from communion to share what we have. And that's why Paul is so upset with the Corinthian Christians in probably the meatiest teaching on communion in the New Testament in 1 Corinthians. Because the rich were eating well and the poor were left out. Now, we have a bunch of vegetables up here in front of the communion table, which is smaller today than usual, so they couldn't fit on the table. we got some radishes, some kale. I think that might be a turnip. Is that a beet? There's various vegetables I don't recognize up here. But you know where this comes from, right? Right over there. It was grown there, showed up here, and it will go to Chalmers Community Services, one of our mission partners. It will go to Royal City Mission, another one of our mission partners, to the Life Center. It will go to people in our congregation in need. Now, we're going to dedicate our KPC garden this morning. It's one of the ways, and there are many ways we do this as a church, that we share our resources with those in need in Guelph. And it's the tip of the iceberg of this life together, this life of generosity that we're moved to as we thank God for all that he's given us. And I wonder, part of me wonders if as those two disciples were, whoa, that's not good. Part of me wonders if as those two disciples were walking along, if, you know, maybe they were arguing a little bit, like it doesn't tell us, but they seem a little testy to me when Jesus says, what's going on? They're like, haven't you heard? What's wrong with you? They seem a little upset. The church is also a community of reconciliation. This is a table of reconciliation that brings us together with God in a way that we don't deserve. It also brings us together as people who disagree, as people who think very differently. And in a time of great polarization, when people who identify as conservative or liberal, people who identify as Leafs fans or Habs fans are sometimes not willing to sit together. Okay, I'm, I'm willing to sit together with Habs fans. Let me just say that. We all recognize that there is a, a great polarization going on in our society. And the church within that is a community of peace, finds a way of peace, and ensures that we're not in an echo chamber when we are reaching out when we come to this table in the humility that we're invited to come to it. 
You cannot come to this table and still think highly of yourself, that you're better than someone else because of your political views, because of your education, because of your theological understanding, your way of doing whatever it is. You can only come to this table in humility. That's how we're called to it. And I believe that Jesus is walking with us today, with each one of us. He wants us to recognize that he is real, that he is with us in the challenges of our life. He knows you. He created you. And the way you're going to find him is by finding yourself. He says to you and to all of us, I am the resurrection and the life. He went to the cross to give us ultimate hope, hope that you can change, hope that you are changed, hope that your sins are forgiven, that you are made new, that death itself is defeated. So thanks be to God for his great gift for which we can only give thanks. Let us pray. Dear God, you are so generous to us. You've provided all that we need from the very basics, those little pleasures, meals, a cup of coffee, clean drinking water, chocolate milkshake, to the gift of faith and of salvation and everything in between. We praise you and we give thanks to you. And now as we come to this table, we recognize that you are with us. And, and maybe just in the silence, we'll have a moment of preparation and of ourselves no longer listening to the person at the front talking, but whether you want to pray or reflect quietly, of asking God to make himself more real, more visible to you today. Amen.